Tonight we are in the ninth lesson that comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And so I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles there as we begin our study. Let me begin by pointing out as we study the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon will urge us to understand that life is difficult. It's difficult to live and it's difficult to understand. Many of us struggle with trying to understand what we ought to do and in every situation we're in, what is the correct choice. Knowing which path to follow in life is not always easy. For instance, do I follow the path of pleasure versus pain? And before you say, oh, you always follow the path of pain, no, you don't either. Many of us look for life to be happy and joyful and to enjoy the pleasures that go along with this life. And for that reason, sometimes we choose pleasure over pain. And sometimes we recognize that we ought to be choosing the route of pain over pleasure, but our minds and our hearts and our desires overrule us. I also put reckless versus responsible. I hate to use the word reckless, but in reality, how many of us live our lives as if we get up tomorrow and we find out what's going to happen on that day and we just meet it as it comes without any plan, without any direction whatsoever? Or are we responsible? That is, we plan what we're going to say, what we're going to do, and how we're going to act. You see, for Solomon, these are some very significant points and we have to ask the question, does it matter what choices I make and how I live my life? Solomon pondered that. In fact, the preacher, talking about Solomon, pondered all the aspects of life and helps man to reflect on the real meaning of life. And I believe that the more you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the more you will appreciate God and appreciate the plan that he has set forth for man. We're going to look at four things in our lesson tonight. We're going to look, first of all, at observation from verse 1. What has Solomon observed in this life? It ties back with chapter 7, verse 29. Then he's going to make a major point in verses 2 through 9 about the obligation to the government, to the king, and whether or not we ought to be respectful of that authority. Number three, he's going to talk about objectivity. It's difficult for us to be objective at times, but God is always objective. He's able to see it all. And then finally, I tried to think of some way to express this last part in verses 15 through 17. And I, the best word I could come up with was obscured. That is, God has revealed to us a lot of what he has done in this world, but part of it he has obscured from our sight so that we're not able to see it all. So let's take these routes, if you will, as we go through chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Who is a wise man, or who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. As you begin, he asks the question, who knows the interpretation of a thing? 
As you go through the Bible, there are some words that are unique. You sometimes don't notice that unless you try to look them up in the original language. This word that is translated here, interpretation, is not your ordinary word. And this is a unique word which is from the Hebrew word pesher. And you can say, well, I don't understand what significance that is. If you ever do any study or watching a movie on the Dead Sea Scrolls, they will talk about the Pesher Scrolls. And what they are are commentaries on the Old Testament passages. For instance, there are some scrolls on the prophet Habakkuk. There is a Pesher Habakkuk, which is a commentary and what they mean by that is this is the solution to understanding this book. So when Solomon uses this word here and he talks about who knows the interpretation, who knows the solution to life? Who's got it figured out? Well, taken with chapter 7 and verse 29, here's what he is saying. Truly this only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The American Standard says they've sought out many inventions. What he is describing here, can you find a man who has a solution to life as to why you and I choose to do wrong? Why is it that we find so many different ways to go away from God? Especially in light of the fact of all that God has done for us. So Solomon says, who has got this figured out? Who knows the solution? Who has the interpretation to this? Now, one of the next things he says, it makes his face to shine. And then he talks about the sternness of his face changed. He's not talking about two different things. He's talking about the, a man's normal look in life, the sternness of his face. I want you to imagine you've got a book open here and you're reading along and you're trying to figure out what the writer is saying and then all of a sudden it comes to you just like that. Oh, I got it figured out. Do you know what happens to a person's face when they figure something out? The man's face will reflect the accomplishment of his investigation. Eureka, I found it. It's almost as if a smile comes over his face. As if this, this expression has changed. It's only by God's revelation, however, that one can come to that level of excitement. How many of you have ever been reading through the Bible and you read through a passage of Scripture and you say, I don't really get that. And maybe you look in the margin of your Bible there and you see some parallel passages, some verse references. And you go and you read that. And then you come back and you read this passage again. And you say, all right, I got it now. That's Solomon talking about understanding life. He's gotten it. He's figured out the solution. Now Solomon from that is going to talk about some things that are related to it. So he's going to move to obligation. And I want you to read with me now verses 2 through 9. As he says, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. 
Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does what pleases him. Where is the word of a king? There is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart will discern both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is time and judgment. Though the misery of man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power over the day of death. There's no release from war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There's a time which one one man rules over another to his own hurt. Let's explore what Solomon is talking here about this obligation. He's talking about submitting to the authority of the king. And submitting to authority is a challenge because no one wants someone else telling him what to do. Now, I'd I'd really challenge each and every one of you to see if that is not in your life as well as in mine. How many of us want our government telling us what to do, when to do it, how to do it? How many of us who, when we were teenagers in our homes, wanted our parents to tell us, you've got to make up your bed, you've got to take a bath, you've got to do your chores? How many of us, when we go to work, want our employer, our bosses to say to us, now here's what I want you to do, here's how I want you to do it. In reality, most of us want to do our own thing. I'd suggest to you that in the context here, Solomon is saying, you people who think you want to do your own thing, I say, listen to the command of the king. Because authority is good. A world without authority would be a world in chaos. Let me illustrate. Proverbs 29 verse 15 The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You leave someone to make their own choices and see what kind of child they turn out to be. You take a society and you have no laws, no rules, no regulations, and see what would happen to our society quickly. The chaos that would exist. Or notice Jeremiah 10, 23. Oh Lord, I know the way of man. It is not a man that walks to direct his own steps. Man does not have the capacity to make the right choices in and of himself. He needs authority. He needs guidance from God. Government is good as God ordained it. Even the Apostle Paul, who stood before Nero to give answer for false charges, could write in Romans 13, beginning with verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists God, or resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You see, what he is discussing here is the importance of the government, the authorities as God has established them. And then he's going to give some phrases that appear after that. and It's easier to just skip over them. But he says, do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. When a person is hasty to run out, that means they're dissatisfied. They're defiant. I'm not going to listen to what he says. I know what he says, but I'm gone. I'm out of here. Or do not be hasty to stand for an evil thing. That is to challenge his authority. I know what he has told me, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stand against him. He said, don't you do that. Don't you stand for this evil thing. Man is not in a position to challenge the king's royal decree. Who are you? Let me ask you, are you happy with everything that our government is doing right now? I'm not. Our government is doing some ungodly evil things from the ground up. But who am I to be able to go to our authorities and say, you can't do that? They'll laugh me out of there. You do it in some countries and they will take your life. And Solomon is expressing that. A wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. He realizes, you know what? There's a season, there's a time for everything. There's a time to speak up and there's a time to be quiet. Chapter 3, verse 17 says, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. I may not be able to correct all of the ungodly things our government does, but I know one thing. There's a God in heaven who's going to correct it one day. And I should not fret myself because I can't change everything. I will tell you, that is a fault I have. I wish I could change everything. I wish I could straighten some people out. I wish I could tell people that the lottery is a stupid tax. I wish our government would quit approving the slaughter of innocent babies. There's so many things that I would like to change, but I understand God's in control and not me. But then Solomon goes on to point out there's some limitation to these authorities here. Kings or anyone else does not have the power to keep from dying. Oh yes, they can bring in the best doctors. They can bring in those who will try to help them. But you know what has happened to every king who has lived in the past? With the exception of the ones who are in our generation, they're all dead. Not one of them were able to prevent their death. 
Listen to Isaiah 38, verses 1 and 2. In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Why did he pray? Because there's nobody else who can save him. He doesn't have the power over the day of his death. In Psalm 49, verse 6 through 10, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them by any means can redeem his brother nor give God ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Did you hear what he says? There's nobody, I don't care how rich you are, you can't go to God and say, God, I will give you a billion dollars if you'll preserve the life of my brother, the life of my sister, my mother, my father, my son, my daughter. You can't pay enough. You have to realize the king can't do everything. He still stands under the subjection of God. Just like one engaged in a war may not be released, he's there fighting the battle. You and I are in this life and we can't turn around and say, I don't want to be here. One's wickedness will not release a sinner either. I think he's talking about the enslavement of sin here. In John 8 and verse 34, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And then Peter would say, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption or bondservants of corruption, of whom a man is overcome, by him is he also brought into bondage. One man may rule over another to his hurt. You know, sometimes those who have the authority, those who have the power, those kings were so drunk with their power that they hurt their own selves. If you go back to chapter 5 and verse 13, he talks about those with riches. And he says, this is a severe evil I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. People keep grabbing that money even though they know that it's going to be their downfall. By the same token, there are some people who grab a hold of riches and wealth, and it too is for their own downfall. The third thing that Solomon is going to discuss is in verses 10 through 14. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from a place of holiness. And they were forgotten in the city where they had done so done. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow 
because he does not fear before God, there is vanity which occurs on the earth. That there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. And again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of righteousness. And this I said also is vanity. Ideally, justice should be blind. And every transgression should receive a just punishment. And yet rarely is our society objective. Do you believe that? For instance, people like O.J. Simpson, whom I think everybody, including his own attorneys, believed was guilty. But what is sometimes referred to as jury nullification, where they decided that maybe he had been mistreated in some way, and so he is let off free. Our society, if it were blind, would be able to say, okay, this person did this, what's the punishment for it? Does God do that? Yes, God knows whatever just punishment deserves. But you see, our society is rarely objective. The wicked are often honored in their death. You think about the people that you have known of that were wicked, and it comes time, they're passing, and all that you hear are the good things that they have done in their life. He goes on to point out that the wicked's actions are forgotten in the very place where they are performed. They did evil here, and now people forgot about that evil. You let the time pass, and what happens to people? The bad that they have done just somehow gets swept under the rug, and that gets forgotten. And they've never made it right. And here... I'm going to paraphrase what he says. Justice delayed is justice denied. Because the wickedness of men is not punished, he said they have fully set their heart to do evil. They've got their minds made up they're going to do wrong. Sinners seemingly multiply their sins and keep getting away with it. Do you believe that accurately describes this life? Why does that happen? Because our justice system is not objective. It's not able to see truth and justice blindly. But see, objectivity is a characteristic of God. Romans 2, 5 through 11, he says, But in accordance with their hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there's no partiality with God. See, when we, we get to the day of judgment, God's not going to look at you and say, Oh, I like you. I like your family. We're going to just sort of not worry about all those sins that you had. No, God's going to judge us all 
fairly, honestly, objectively. For some people, that ought to be a scary thought. For others, it ought to be a comforting thought. Job 34, 19, Elihu says, Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. On earth there's frustration because the righteous are often unrewarded and the wicked are unpunished. But be assured, God will right all wrongs. Now that leads me to the fourth part, and I want to move through this quickly. Look at verses 15 through 17. So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain him with him in his labor all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. When I apply my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, even though one sleeps or sees no sleep day or night, then I saw the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though wise and he attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Now while it's good to ponder, ultimately understanding God's ways have been obscured for man's sight. You know, there's a curtain behind me, that curtain obscures what is behind it. Occasionally it's opened, but for the most part it is closed. In reality, there are things of God's nature that are open to us. We see them. We understand them. But there are other parts of this life that are closed and we don't always grasp it. We don't always understand it. Notice the considerable effort that he said he applied. He said, I applied my heart to know wisdom. It wasn't just superficial. He really tried. He said to see the business that is done on the earth. We're not talking about what goes on in heaven. We're talking about why people do what they do here on earth. He said, no sleep, day or night. It wasn't he didn't try hard enough. It wasn't he didn't try long enough. He wanted to know. Hence, trust God and enjoy what he has given. That's tough, folks. That really is. When you come to this life and you see injustice, and you see bad choices by people, and you see sometimes people who are wicked do not get what they deserve. And you see good people get what they do not deserve. They are, they're mistreated. They're spoken against. For those of us who are Christians, it ought to be a comfort to know that God's there in heaven and He's taking care of all of it. Living in a just world can be both frustrating and frightening. It puzzles us at times why God doesn't just end it all and end it all now. Have you ever sat at home listening to the news, which is always bad news, and they begin to tell you how this bad thing has happened to this day, this bad thing's happened this day, and then they all tell you about each other, and what they tell you is not what good they will do, but what bad the other person has done, 
And you just say, God, why do you just let this world keep going? Why not just bring it to an end now? Ultimately, we have to recognize there are things for us to know and things for us not to know. I think about the apostles right after Jesus had been resurrected. He was there on the top of the Mount of Olives ready to ascend back into heaven. And the apostles had a question. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. To the apostles, that's not been revealed to you. It's not for you to know. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Be thankful that God has revealed to us what he has and have confidence and trust that he himself will right all wrongs. If you will, take your songbook out now, and we're going to sing an invitation song. And if you are not ready to meet the Lord, if you are one of those who has evil in your life, this is an opportunity for you. An opportunity for you to become a Christian by belief in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing that faith, and being baptized. If you are a child of God and you know there's sin in your life, why are you carrying that burden around with you? You can lay that burden down tonight at the feet of our Savior and He will forgive you. Would you come as we stand and sing?